Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The Logos became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us. John 1.14 may be the most important verse in the scriptures. In this session, we set the table for the classic term that defines life, our human kind of life, Logos. From Genesis to John 1, Logos is the life we have lost in living, the life who took on human flesh to reconcile all human beings to our origin. What is Logos? Who is the Logos? Why does John 1.14 matter? Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. We recently had the privilege of sitting at the feet of Reverend Dr. Gregory Schultz at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. For episode 50 of the Wittenberg Hour, please enjoy Plenary Session 1 from Dr. Schultz. Uh, so I'd like to uh, thank all of you, Justin and Jocelyn, too, for inviting me. It's a real honor to be here with you. I thought we should get one thing out of the way right away, and that is um, I was paying attention, as you were, to the worship just a few minutes ago, but I noticed the lovely part of creation outside the window here. Um, so you're supposed to look this way. <laughs> also reminded me of uh, vacation Bible school uh, when my wife was teaching uh, preschool and kindergarten age kids. The theme for the BBS, as far as I remember, was fishers of men. And the first story was about Jesus calling the disciples when they were fishing. Uh, the first little guy to speak up in the class, you know, practically before my wife was done even talking about the story, said, my grandma takes me fishing all the time. And that's all we heard for the rest of the week from all the kindergartners and <laughs> also, I'm telling you that because that's a great thing. I have a grandpa picture here over meals or whatever if you like. Now, I'd like to mention a couple of things. While I'm doing my best to speak loudly and clearly, just give me the universal sign if it's not working for the folks in the back pews or for anyone. I also have tried to set things up so that I can give you some worthwhile substance uh, to take in. And I've done my best to leave some nice space for conversation at the end of each presentation, knowing that this is a group in particular that's going to be interested to ask questions. Let's agree, though, uh, especially for our, our younger uh, scholars among us here today, that if you hear me using some terminology that sounds really unusual, and if you give me a second, see if I don't explain it in the next sentence, if it's just not tracking for you, you can always raise your hand or stand up and say, could you? Take a minute and explain that word you're using. That's always fair game. Uh, finally, I'd like to mention that we are uh, giving some thought to making some of these resources available to you through the Wittenberg Academy website. So uh, I've got plans, Lord willing, to do a narrated version of the PowerPoint stuff that you're seeing. So um, just between you and me, you might want to talk with Justin about that and see if that's definitely something you all right, so we have uh, the four sessions that Justin was good enough to set up for you. Uh, I'm not going to try to bluff this. Here's what happened. I had all sorts of very fruitful ideas for each of the four uh, when I submitted this last year. Uh, but for the sake of having that discussion time, there are some spots where I'm just referring to things that were teased in the inserts and in the, the prelim material. So feel free to bring that up in questions, okay? All right, so here we go. Logos, the story of our life. While I've got the graphic up here, do any of you recognize that plate over on the right? That picture? It's from the St. John's Bible. Are you familiar with that? If you're not, you want to look this up online. And um, it's, it's something that's actually not far away in Minnesota, outside the Twin Cities at St. John's Abbey. This was the commissioning of a 21st century Bible to be done according to all of the methods and largely with the materials that were used in medieval manuscripts. So there was a, a commissioning 
I assume a ton of money also had to be gathered to make this possible. Uh, if you visit St. John's Abbey, you can actually see the full-size original. Uh, if you visit St. John's Abbey, you can see the originals of this, but also it's very worth looking for the duplicated stuff online where you can get kind of a glimpse as you are here. So this is the opening plate for John chapter 1. Uh, if you can make it out, this is our central text. The Word became flesh. That is a representation of Jesus there. And I'm assuming that the biblical text is getting your attention, but at the same time, you're noticing that it looks rather gold. It's actually done in 24 karat gold leaf in, in those Bibles. So there's some amazing artistry. Also, for those of us interested in homeschooling and who isn't, um, it's possible to get a DVD of the making of the St. John's Bible. Uh, you might find that at a nearby library, that's possible. Uh, also, you can look that up online, and the prices finally come down on that, so that might be of interest to some of you, too. Uh, so I'm not here to talk about the art, but to talk about the wording in John chapter 1. All right, here's my suitably dramatic introduction. I really don't want to get in the way of the text, but I need to be able to talk about the story of Logos heading down to centering on and then overflowing from John chapter 1. So here is a little bit of verbiage. A long time ago, in the cosmos far away in space-time, Heraclitus of Ephesus discovered a principle, the ultimate first principle of all creative things, in fact. He named this archaic, and archaic doesn't just mean old, you remember. It means from the source, or flowing from the source. He named this archaic principle the logos in his Greek language. Half a millennium after this discovery, Jewish man, personally beloved by God himself, wrote by verbal inspiration, the Logos became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us, and we have seen his Shekinah glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. This apostle, St. John, is believed to have written down these words in Heraclitus' town of Ephesus. In our own day, two and one-half millennia after Heraclitus and two millennia after John, there came into the cosmos that we inhabit a French philosopher, watch out for that, who wrote many books to convince us that language is meaningless, urging latter-day heirs of Heraclitus and John to deconstruct, that is, in his idiosyncratic, that's his rather personalized and odd terminology, utterly to dismiss the Logos in all of its iterations. So here's the sweep of our work together, Lord willing, these few days. Uh, we are first today going to look at the Logos as the concept developed. I'll talk a lot more about that um, in this hour. Then we're going to move on to talk about the Logos in the historical Western sense in which it's used as a description for our human kind of being. And we'll see, as uh, Luther pointed out too, uh, and as a couple of major philosophers in the 20th century have recovered that we are members of the Logos, or the language species, a critically important issue for us today. Uh, so we'll look, and finally, at the postmodernist attack on Logos language and the human being. And finally, we'll wrap up with showing the power of life in Christ with regard to a couple of particular issues, especially the divine institution of marriage. There may or may not be a quiz. I'm not committing at this point. All right, so here's a timeline. Uh, I'd, like you to, I'd like to take a few moments to, to work with this. I don't know how things are working at the age that uh, you folks are, are studying with your parents and others at home, or how things are, are working generally. But I find that with the students that I have as undergraduates at the university level, and also with the world missionaries I'm privileged to teach in PhD program, that we are, I think, pretty decent in getting timelines done for particular subjects, but I'm pretty sure that we are not doing a great job of integrating all of the different historical timelines and the happening of biblical events and literature and everything in one comprehensive way. So I'm offering this as a way to do that. Now, the most important feature of the timeline 
is the dip in the middle. So the dip in the middle, right at the fullness of time, is to show what's going on with the Logos, as John proclaims him here in John 1. But also, it's actually got a lot to do with St. Paul. So Galatians 4, right? Um, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Top pleroma to cranu is his Greek. And you're okay with that, aren't you? Um, probably you've been studying some, but also as English speakers, even in English for our second or third language, we've got an awful lot of Greek in our backpacks. So, top pleroma to cranu. Cranu is in chronology. Here we go. Back to that timeline. Top pleroma to cranu. So, cranu, as in chronos or chronology, means a particular view of time. It's tick-tock, it's orbit of the Earth, it's pattern of the constellations, time. Metric, measured, created, public, time. In the fullness of time, could we say, you've got to show this on all of your timelines, right? I can also report to you from the philosophy and the Western thought side of things that it does not make any sense whatsoever when you look at the development of thought to try, even for one philosopher, to ignore the fullness of time that I'm showing in the timeline up here. It's the case either, as Paul says in Acts 17, that people are acting in ignorance prior to the coming of Christ and his resurrection, or afterwards that they are deliberately ignoring the fulfillment of wisdom. After all, Christ is the wisdom of God, right? That philosophy and thought generally inspired to. All right, so that's the central feature here. The second feature of the timeline is that it's aligned. So if we were doing Greek thought here, or any outside of Western thought, I suppose, it's likely that it wouldn't be a timeline, but a time cycle, or a time ball. So the fact that there's a starting point in creation, and there is a heading for eternity over on the right-hand side, is, is my commitment to philosophy of time from Augustine, who got this from the Bible, and that sort of thing. Now, are we doing okay? So I need to, to pull out a couple more features here so that we can situate the center of gravity in Christ the incarnate Logos. If you look over to the left, I'm putting creation about 6,000 years before today. I'm thinking that that's probably pretty much the way we're doing things at home. And at any rate, that's the way Luther talks in his commentary on Genesis, so there you go. Um, I appreciate that there could be a big discussion there, but I'm simply taking it that the biblical data are pretty much as Luther pointed out. If you look at Genesis 5, you do some calculating, then you've got your innovative flood, about 2,000. So I take this to be, well, gospel. All right, so. Uh, 2000 BC, on the far side of that is where the Noahidic flood is, familiar territory, yes, and on the near side of that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I'll hurry along, because I know my assignment isn't to do the timeline with you today, but at 1000 BC, that's where we have King David, and then there's some overlap in their reign, but in the 900s BC would be Solomon, and that very I say this is a very philosophical book of Ecclesiastes about the meaning of life or the meaninglessness of life apart from the words of the one shepherd. Okay, and then clicking down really fast, 400 BC. 400 BC is the official start of philosophy, and you could make the case for Western culture and civilization. It begins actually a little bit before that with what we call the pre Socratics, but 400 is where I teach my first-year students. You just pile up Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle right against 400 BC, and we'll call that good for the whole semester. Right? Remember that, and we'll be doing some good work together. So, at long last, getting down to a couple other things, I am going to make a reference in uh, one of my slides to the time between the Testaments in regard to biblical translation, but 400 BC would be the completion of the entire Hebrew Old Testament, right? So actually, philosophy and Western thought start right at the point where the 
entire Old Testament Hebrew scriptures are completely written. We don't think, though, and this may be important for today's discussion too, we don't think that there's any evidence, alas, that either Socrates or Plato or Aristotle have any contact with the divinely inspired scriptures. They didn't get to talk with the prophets and so on. I, I regard this as quite lamentable because in a lot of ways these guys are working in the right trajectory, right? They're looking for absolute truth and norms, but they didn't have the scriptures. So they're, they're kind of lost at sea. Um, this especially happens with Aristotle about the purpose of the human being. It's like he's shooting in the right direction but he can't achieve escape velocity because he doesn't have Christ in the Messiah and scriptures. Okay, now, um, the other stuff happening on the other side, I'd love to talk about that too. Here's the only thing I'm going to say right now though. A subtext for me when I'm preparing for opportunities to talk with folks like you and the pastors that I get to teach and so forth. The subtext for me is that we urgently desperately, and for Lutheran reasons, need serious philosophical reading and study in the Lutheran Church. This is not anywhere near my saying that we should substitute philosophy for catechesis or something. Uh, but I would like to point out that we Lutherans are not, aw shucks, those rural people who never had much education, but Dolly or sure sincere about We are university faith particular university faith, and I'd just like to remind you of something that you know, which you can check me out on. If we don't have at least a, a decent look at philosophy, we are going to lose, maybe have already lost, huge chunks of our Lutheran patrimony, our heritage. You can't actually make sense of the opening of most of these wonderful translations of Gerhardt coming out over the last 10, 15, 20 years if you don't have some philosophy, because otherwise you're wondering, why in the world is he spending 20 pages defining the Holy Scriptures? That's, that's straight from philosophy. Why is Luther doing half the stuff that he's doing in the way he organizes it? If you don't know some philosophy, you're not going to know Luther the way we want to know him. And we're going to be disabled from sharing this because of our apologetic um, anemia. So, right, so that's just it. Now, Let's get to talking about John chapter 1. Almost. This is Heraclitus. So I want to introduce you to Heraclitus, and I want to tell you what I'm doing. I am just not sophisticated enough to, to give you moving graphics on my PowerPoint. And even if I did, I don't think, if I had the skill, I don't think I'd use it. Because I don't want things to detract from our thinking and talking back and forth here. Uh, however, there are two directions that I'm trying to go at one time here. On the one hand, we're following things historically. So Heraclitus is about 500 BC, and John wrote the Gospel of John in the first century AD, so about half a millennium later. So tick-tock, tick-tock, century by century. Heraclitus comes first. The partial development of Logos by Aristotle comes after that, and only then, ta-da, do we get the Holy Ghost revealing what is really going on with the Logos in John chapter 1, to the Apostle John. That's, that's the historical view that I'm taking it. But I should also fess up, I am retroactively sneaking in the stuff that we already know from John chapter 1. So if you like this sort of thing, Are we doing things according to the order of history at the moment, or are we doing things according to the, the order of learning? Right? And the order of learning starts with scripture, and then really get this stuff, I think. But I want to do some of the story here so you feel comfortable with it, and can also see uh, this amazing way that, that God is grabbing a hold of history at this particular place in time, and he is filling up the Greek language stuff that he's going to want to use in the New Testament scriptures. Right, so here's Heraclitus. You already know something about Heraclitus, yes? Um, he is the philosopher who's famous for the you both can and cannot step into the same river twice. I've not seen a lot of things like that. Why not? 
Well, I, that's okay. That's all right. Uh, it may alarm you truly, but some of us here, I see a few of you smiling. Maybe you're just worried about that quiz I threatened you for. But um, I see some of you smiling. Maybe, maybe what you're thinking is, I would like to talk about that for a couple hours. That stuff about identity over time, isn't it? Me too, but that's not my assignment today. So, you both can and cannot step in the same river twice. If you think about it, it seems pretty obvious that if you put your feet in the Mississippi River 10 years ago, it's hardly the same river. All the H2O molecules have gone down into the Gulf of Mexico evaporated. And by the way, you are not the same person you were 10 years ago. We're told on reliable sources that every element in our body switches over by every seconds. So it's not the same unit, it's not the same river, right? Wrong. It is. So there's the discussion. Okay, but you suitably stirred up on that. Now back to Heraclitus Columbus. This is also Heraclitus who is identified later in Plato as being the philosopher of flux or change. And I'd like to point out something that is obvious. Of course it's simple to explain. If your name is Heraclitus and you're thinking an awful lot about change that is a feature of reality and a feature of the human being and a feature of rivers, you see, you're thinking about change, um, it's inevitable that some people, even though they're Plato, are going to label you as the philosopher of change. But that can't actually be the case. We wouldn't be talking about Heraclitus 2,500 years later if all he said was everything's changing a lot. Or everything's changing all the time. If you realize that things are changing a lot, all the time, here is Heraclitus' insight. There must be something that's staying put, right? Because if, for instance, the world outside our minds was changing all the time, no thing would be the thing that it is from one moment to the next, so there wouldn't be a thing to know. That's good stuff, though. I mean, really. So, if everything is absolutely changing, if it really is in chaos, and we're tired of hearing everybody say that's the way life really is, if that really were the case, we could never know that that was the case, because the things to be known wouldn't stay put. They wouldn't be the thing. Thing A from moment to moment. Also, the language by which we know things would not be language. It would be a constant morphing of nothing. And we ourselves would not be the knowers that you know we are because you're able to think about this stuff right now. So Heraclitus should not be referred to as the philosopher of change, but the philosopher of the thing that always stays the same in the universe and in the human mind. Call it a first principle. It's something that has to be the case, or we couldn't even talk about it being the case. Right? And that thing, Heraclitus labeled dramatic music, please, the logos, the logos. The thing that stays the place is logos. So the universe is logosical, logical. The universe is logos-like. It is continuous. By the way, you can't do contemporary natural science no matter uh, what a narrow, myopic, unsuitable worldview you've got if you don't agree that things are fundamentally the same, that there is something the same out there, or you wouldn't have a universe or a thing to study. Also, if you're doing science, it's obviously the case that you yourself have a logos-like mind to do the observing and the collating and testing out the data and all of that. Okay? The logos. So, a couple quotes. Though logos is common, as in public domain obvious, the logos is common. Yet the many live as if they had a wisdom of their own. For those of you who like to double check in with your Greek, it's up there. You'll notice two lagu is at the beginning there. That's our word logos. Another quote from Heraclitus It is wise to listen not to me, but to the logos, and to confess that all things are one. So our very recognition of reality and that our self-reflective recognition that we ourselves are able to think about reality over 
time is a revelation of the Logos. How come you're nodding along so automatically? Because it's pretty obvious, right? Genius stuff is, is usually pretty commonsensical when somebody points it out. So this is what Heraclitus is doing. Um, there are some very, very translations for that last quote, it's wise to listen not to me, but to the logos. So here they are, just for interest's sake. Listening not to me, but to reason, it is wise to agree that all things are one. Listening to me, not to me, sorry, but to the word, it is wise to agree that all things are one. He who hears not me, but the logos, will say, all is one. And finally, it is wise to hearken not to me, but to my word, logos, and to confess that all things are one. I can't help but notice that that list of optional translations for Heraclitus' Greek, it's actually Aristotle Heraclitus, that Greek is a pretty good warm-up for John chapter 1, at least as far as secular thinking can go. Sounds like, what does Logos mean, right? Speaking of which, I'm still following historical order. So first, there is Heraclitus, about 500 BC. Then, there is another instance of Logos in Scripture before the fullness of time. This is a passage from Psalm 107.20, as you can see. So I mentioned that I'm quoting the Septuagint. Now, here's the thing. If you can visualize that timeline again, the Septuagint would be the Greek translations of the Hebrew Scriptures done about, let's say it's about 150 BC, 
logos in there. You also hear that word archaic as it shows up in English. N R K in uh, logos. Uh, I'd like to mention, as I did earlier, that arche for the Greeks, for Greek writing or speaking people, was not being old and out of date. Far from it, it's kind of just the opposite. It means of of, of old, and it means still providing the source today. I think, I think you do well to think it covers two basic concepts for us. Something back there at a particular point, farther back point in history, and something that serves as a kind of artesian well today. So the reason things are the way they are today is that the Logos is bubbling up, or is affecting everything, you see? And at the same time, Jesus already the Logos, already was there when God began his creating work, as the second person of the Trinity was, as we read in Genesis 1 and 2. All right, so in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and Logos was He was with God in the beginning, through all him, through him, all things came to be. Not one thing had its being, but through him. All that came to be had life in him, and that life was the light of men. The word was the true light that enlightens all men, and he was coming into the world. He was in the world that had its being through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own domain, and his people, his own people, did not accept him. Um, I'll get the hint here. In the New Testament, you will know this from watching the way the word is used, but the word translated world is cosmos for the most part. Cosmos almost always means the world as opposed to its maker and redeemer. It doesn't just mean the populated globe, as it would for but you know, if you watch it, it generally means the autonomous world, the world that has decided it's going to be a law and a gospel unto itself and doesn't want anything to do with the Messiah. The world leaders in some two, right, who take, take on the Messiah and at whom God laughs, actually. But in the first advent, Jesus is coming to, to save them. He's coming against their will to work God's will in our midst. It's in our DNA. Well, to think about Jesus as the logos in whom is life. Uh, another mention here, again, I'm playing a little bit of this in tonight's brief sermon, but life in this particular passage is a particular word for life that we hardly recognize. It is the word zoe, as in zoo, surprisingly enough. There are two Greek words. This is also true for the Greek philosophers, by the way. But there are two Greek words in the New Testament for life. One is bios, which gives us the term biology. The other is zoe, which is the word that's always used for human life. I get to talk about that a little bit more with Aristotle, doing kind of backwards and forwards thing in like the New Testament uh, down the line a little bit. He came to his own, right? And his own people did not accept. But to all who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God. To all who believe in the name of him who was born, not out of human stock or urge of the flesh or will of man, but of God himself. The word was made flesh and lived among us. We saw his glory, the glory that is his, as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the we saw his glory here. I think we want to be real careful about this because you don't want to minimize this at all. It's the apostles. So it's not we Christians all saw this. We haven't, but John did, right? Peter, James, and John on Mount of Transfiguration, John at the crucifixion, John at the resurrection. Uh, we're talking about eyewitness testimony here. Also, by the way, when Paul does that, and he says, we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God, he's talking apostolic we, uh, and that's how we know it for sure. It's not that everybody kind of sees Jesus or something. These are the apostolic eyewitnesses. So we saw his glory. Now, the word was made flesh, and this translation in the Jerusalem Bible says, live for a while among us. It's actually the word tabernacle in there. And, 
I, that's why I suggest that we could well say the tabernacle, the longest tabernacle for a while among us. So what's going on here in a Hebrew way? It's the Shekinah glory of God. It's the pillar of cloud and fire, right? It, it is the visible presence of God with his people, the tangible presence of God with his people, as was warmed up throughout the Old Testament. Not every day, to be sure, but wow, when he came this way, there was no questioning it. The pillar of cloud and fire to protect and lead the Israelites into the Promised Land. The pillar of cloud and fire that was over the Holy of Holies when the tabernacle was dedicated, right? Uh, you might as well say it, I think, when Jesus was transfigured, here's that, the Hebrew would call it Shekinah, here's that glory again. This is the same stuff that the tabernacle was warming everybody up for, or if you will, maybe it would be right to say that that pillar of cloud and fire is the pre-incarnate Christ. Right? That's showing what he's up to. You remember, it's only something that God could initiate and do and that's probably why God prohibited the Old Testament Israelites from any visual or created or artistic representation of him. So you listened to his word and kept this thing about his glory warming up for the incarnation of the longings. So consider this from completely outside the world. Here comes the Lord's. And he's not a principle. Not even a first person. He is the second person of the Trinity. And now we can look back at Heraclitus and say, not bad. Right? Not bad for some of you who didn't have the scriptures. Right? You're catching the tip of the iceberg. This is a Logos-like universe. This is, it is the case that our minds and our very being as human beings are Logos-like in the sense that your client's caught, there's an orderliness there. There's not chaos. There is not chaos, the big word of the Greeks. Right? But, of course, the, I'm switch my pictures a little bit, the uh, underneath part of the iceberg, which is really the foundation of everything, we only learn that from the New Testament scriptures, for instance. From the Logos as taught by, not your client's this time, but taught by an apostle John. And an ear witness to him. All right, so uh, a couple of observations, and then I see I'm going a little long, we'll get to questions momentarily. I thought that I would just try a little bit of a tie in here because I am about to, to move on, or rather, I guess next time, we'll be moving on to look at human beings and our entire human race being the Logos species. But um, just a language example. So the sort of title that I borrowed for our series together is the story of our life. There's um, a book called The Stories of Your Life by Ted Chiang. You guys are into that, those short, short science fiction science stories. By Ted Chiang is a pretty gifted and I think uh, interesting author in his short stories especially. Somebody who's trained in physics and yet he's got um, a wide enough open mind to consider that physics can hardly cover everything. Knowledge. Um, so he is the short story writer who's behind the movie Arrival. Um, if you are looking for that later on and don't already know it, I'd be very careful when you Google that. You don't want to be the Arrival. If you're going to arrive at uh, Stephen King or something, which one is the title Arrival? And then uh, the circle that you're seeing there is the way they handle language for the, the visiting Captain aliens in that movie. It's a of a remarkable linguistic thing. The language shaped the very way that the narrator was able to understand the life and the death of her daughter who hadn't been born yet at the time that she's narrating it. So the power of language. But that doesn't appeal to you. Certainly will over the right hand side. I am simply borrowing this phrase without feeling accountable to use it in this sense at all. But uh, for Marshall medium is the message. So here's the thing. The Gospel of John is extraordinarily rich in the means by which Jesus does things, or the means by which God does things, don't you think? So this is the book of the Bible that describes Jesus' miracles as signs or semaya. Signs. What are they signs of? 
these are the means that Jesus is doing this stuff. These are the means by which God is showing his divine character and his divine authority. This is the promised Messiah coming to the flesh. So the means of grace for us are very dependent on the logos. Um, I, I don't want to say totally independent of Heraclitus' logos, but let's just make that real small print and let that drift off to the side and put John 1 in great big font attention. Uh, it's all about the logos. So logos as a language reminds us to think that this is the means by which, you see, language is the means by which we reveal each other to one another as the persons that we are. Language is the means by which God has chosen to communicate or commune with us. And then of course the means of grace being the word of scripture in the first place, are also the means, uh, also establish and uh, the institution of the other means of grace, holy baptism and the Eucharist and absolution. Right? So this is a, a big, big deal. The logos is maybe the best way to keep a good eye on what the means of grace are richer our understanding of logos is, perhaps the more often we talk about the logos, uh, John chapter 1, to watch the history of logos, by the way, in the church and in Western thought, maybe the more robust and obvious our conversations about the means of grace and how vital they are for our human lives together. Uh, speaking of which, here is my favorite quote. Now, I, I should so, I don't know if Pastor Pete feels this way too, but I think maybe most often when we're preaching, we end up saying, This is my favorite pas passage in Scripture, whatever we're assigned to preach on for that Sunday. It should be our favorite passage, you know, for preaching on that day. But I think that, that this may be a good candidate for the single most important, if you want to do that sort of thing, the single most important phrase from the confessions for today, for what we are facing, what we are going through. And I think it has been the most important for a while, but I'm, I'm glad to highlight it. So, Nisi Kerberwin, there's the exact quote, or the reference for the quote, sorry. God cannot be treated with, God cannot be apprehended, Latin. Nisi Kerberwin, which by the way is working for you too, isn't it? Whether you've been doing a lot of Latin or not, you're an English speaker, so you're recognizing the, verb, the word verb in there, right? Except through the word. Except through the word. God cannot be treated with, God cannot be apprehended, not comprehended, by the way. Tentative touching now, which is except through the word apology, <coughs> and it's a big marquee article to boot on justification. Okay, so here's a, a quick tie in Logos in Greek is verbo in Latin. So it's actually saying nisi per logo, nisi per logos, except through the logos. In the first place, it's it's meaning word that is Christ, God in the flesh himself. The Logos became flesh and tabernacle for a while almost. In the second sense, it would mean the entire verbatim text of the Bible, Jesus, John 5. These are the scriptures that testify of me. Right? That's what these scriptures are for. That's what they do. And then I would say in a third sense that it refers to language that is the atmosphere of our being human beings. More to come in the next session on that. But I am perfectly willing to defend the thought that language is something that is included in that apology statement. So it is Jesus in the first place, the logos. It is the biblical text in the second place as the means of grace, which is God's logoi, or words to us. And in the third place, that particular statement, actually all the Lutheran confessions and actually all the scripture, assume this view that language is the very atmosphere in which we live in when we have our being, the paraphrase of all. So, after some discussion and questions, what should we talk about? Please. Uh, I like what you said about the tabernacle. Uh, yeah. Uh, the glory uh, of the tabernacle, and you also point out that it was always 
that we read in Exodus about the pillar of cloud and this is to show uh, the people of Israel that the Lord is going with them. This is a company thing. Terrifying this company with them. Uh, and uh, what corresponds to the preaching of the New Testament and the, these burnt offerings? So they burn these offerings in the back, smoke going up, the woods remind them of, it reminds them that the Lord himself tabernacle among them. So this logos that we're talking about, uh, the fact that it tabernacled among us shows us what the content of Christian preaching and catechesis and all that teaching should be. That, that for the time the law was with us had that had that goal. Yeah, that, so can you guys hear this okay? So what we're doing up here is we're taking uh, another look at the tabernacling verb in in the John passage. The word tabernacle or well And then do you offer the thought that this, the old testament sacrifices are a counterpart to preaching and Yeah uh, yeah, I don't think that's quite adequate. Well, let, let me just say this. Let me just say this way you can have that happen. So the deal is this. The, the presence of Christ takes place in, with, and under the Word of God. Just as the presence of Christ takes place in, with, and under the bread and wine. So uh, I would say that, that when Christ's Word is being preached, or bless every one of you, especially the parents, when it's being taught in their homes, right? That, that the way to think about that is that the pillar of cloud and fire is descending right back there. And here's why. Because Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. God's word is not an occasion, it's the thing itself. That's what the New Secret Parable is about. So when you are preaching and teaching for, for our uh, infinitely precious sons and daughters here, too, right? When you are learning, uh, when God's word or the means, the other means of grace are there, this is the pillar of cloud and fire moment. Jesus remains with us all the time. I mean, he's physically here right now. We can't perceive it, but we don't have faith. He doesn't say. I'll get back to you. Right? He says, I'm with you always. And, and then the, mean, the question for me is, so but what do you think about that? Well, I, I think prefer what's Klein think about that when we're talking about this. I don't know. I mean, I learned a lot from him. But uh, I like it, obviously. I mean, Jesus said, Lord, we always need to be engaged. How else can we with us? That's the word. It's the point of But a little bit common. Of course, how else? It's a bunch of Lutherans. Like, I mean, I think it's uh, the pillar that goes up in the sacrifice does teach them that the Lord dwells with them according to his promises. Right? Well, if, if, if you or John want to, want to maintain that, I think that's fine. Um, in our discussion of love this year, I do want to make the point that according to the incarnation of the love and the Hebrew vocabulary that's spoken through the reading here, <coughs> Jesus is present. I, I don't see the reason for making something of a different metaphor. That, that's what I'm saying. We're thinking about this. We don't know if we agree perfectly when we talk this way. This is, this is very important. Um, there are other church bodies, other branches of Christianity that will in effect teach that what we know are the means of grace are just occasions that happen to be there alongside things happening in your soul. That's John Calvin, actually. Right? It's, it's a kind of Neoplatonism, as a matter of fact. Uh, but but it, this is a real thing. It's a real activity. This is a genuine happening. Uh, when, when Christ's word is there, Christ is there. Just like, you know, this is what he's no, yes, 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 okay, yeah. So just just like, you know, when a husband and wife were saying to each other, I love you, even though I didn't do the dishes, 
this is a real happening. How do you know that? Because of the words. Because of the words. And I, I, I just want to pre-sanitize the watch of What you don't want to do is say something like, well, no, dear, that's not really what you mean. What you, what you really mean. It's the words. The words are how we reveal ourselves to each other as a person. And anything that gets between the means of grace and um, God's work on us, I think, is, is to be um, jettisoned. Um, Okay, so if I got your question right, we're talking about the event of the Tower of Babel and Babel, not just Babel, not in my life. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and how does that square with Lucas? How would you like to focus that? How would you place that in the context of explaining that? Right, well, I'd offer this thought. Um, at, at the Tower of Babel and Babel, what, what was God doing? He didn't take language away. But he inflicted logoi instead of logos on people. You know what I mean? So instead of, um, this is what God said to do. That was the problem, right? This is what God said to do. No building cities or skyscrapers here. You're supposed to replenish the earth. Um, and the people said, nuts to you. We're going to do what we want to do. And while they're doing this, God comes down and gives them a bunch of languages to confound them and make them do what they were supposed to do all along. So it, I think, to me, it's interesting that God didn't withdraw the gift of language, nor did he do that from Adam and Eve. Right. That, that would have been the end of us. Didn't do that, but instead, he keeps riveting us on the biblical language and his expressed will, in the case of Abel, in the case of his expressed will, to do so, his word is to be followed. Um, do you know there's for those of you who are interested in um, one of the last couple first things journals? There's a, uh, an interesting article that may or may not catch our attention right away. It has something to do with mouth. But the article is about the kosher habits of observing Jewish people uh, based on the Old Testament. And the author there says, you know, in effect, you've got to stop kidding around about this. It may or may not be the case that the foods that God told people not to eat were bad for their health. That's not the point, though. The point is, you're supposed to do what God told you to do. Right? So the kosher laws are, are an exercise in keeping the one loveless in view. The one God's That's just a thought on Um, there is another interesting feature in here, and that is that the word logos, when it gets put into other tongues or other languages, especially historically, when it goes from the Greek of logos to the Latin of verbo, things get messed up. Um, I think uh, if you're really working hard on Latin right now, or your uh, sons or daughters are, you have cover a few years here. I, I think, just to make this kind of dramatic so you never think. I think that bad things happen to Greek concepts when they get put into Latin. That there's, a, there's a kind of sanding down and a kind of separating things that weren't separated. And this is one case where that really is quite obvious. So I think it was Augustine who first did this. He did a lot of great stuff. This was not something. Uh, he took the word logos, and then in his Latin, he separated it into verbum and ratio. So language and reason. And, and if you think about this, and just let me get away with kind of a quick overall thought here. The problem then is that ratio takes over. And, and even in discussions of the image of God and so forth, it's talked about as our rationality, right? Instead of our logos-like being. As I'll explain to my wife, putting a lot on tomorrow's as I explained to you, the word logos is an astonishingly pregnant word.
word. I think maybe it may be the most fruitful word in, in all of language. Right? It just covers so much. And then ratio just takes a little slice out of it. And then that becomes kind of a whole discussion. So verbum is the thing to watch. But logos is where you actually want to focus your attention here. Because it was logos that Heraclitus used. He had options for words that would uh, emphasize chronos and, and rationality and so forth. He didn't use that. Uh, but more importantly, John did not use um, rationality became flesh or something like that. It's the logos became flesh. I was curious if going the other way, back in the Hebrew, has got any correlation with the bar, the bar, Yeah, so our, our question, just so we can all hear it, our question is if we, instead of going forward from John 1 and looking at how Logos is, is sort of um, eroded in the Latin composition, look backwards and ask about the comparison of Logos to Dabar, which would be, would you agree, this is the generic word for speak or speaking? I, I don't know, except I've already given an example. I should double check this to be real sure. I think that Dabar or Cognate is what's used in that psalm verse where the Septuagint uses Logos. So I should also test up um, that I tend, when I'm not real sure about stuff in Hebrew, to double check the Septuagint because I feel more comfortable with the Greek. I do think it's true, though, what you said about how moving from Greek to Latin. Uh, there is some erosion. Yes. Some division and erosion. Yeah, thanks. I'd like to think about that some more. I, I would suspect what's happening is um, that generally with Hebrew, let me know if you agree or disagree. Generally, Hebrew is more holistic and Greek is more analytic. Right? Which is a big problem for philosophy. That's why, by the way, good, good thinking has benefited a lot from getting the, the Hebrew mindset on the stuff the way God reveals it as his prophets and Moses right now. So I would, I would guess that Debar is, um, is catching more of the activity and the sound and, and stuff. And Lovis does that pretty much too. So maybe it's pretty close to a decent perfect fit on this, this particular issue. Well, that's what I, I'd like to think about. So you had mentioned that three, three parts of the Logos earlier on. One, the, the, the Logos being the second person of the Trinity that came and woke among us. I think I'm comfortable with that notion. And then Logos is the Word of God itself, right? That we go for the Word and working in it. Both of those things are outside of ourselves, right? The Logos outside of me. But the third point you had, the logos is something that is common to our humanity. And so I'm struggling with is that also part of the when when John says the logos came and dwelt among us, are you also inserting that third part into that logos that came and dwelt among us? Thanks. So if you're looking for some precision in how I'm, I'm moving from logos to we are the logos species, that's tomorrow's next okay. session. And I, I don't mind just saying this, but um, the thing is that, that Logos, because of that fruitfulness I mentioned before, does embrace language, right? It's a good synonym for language. Um, so I, I will very carefully tomorrow say that the dominant Western discussion has been to say that the human being, up until the the human being is the Logos species. I'll explain that. Yeah, well, uh, actually, I'd like to talk about that too. I also think logos is a better term for what the image of God is than rationality or something. I hinted at that a moment ago. But then, just so you don't lose sleep tonight, worried about my orthodoxy or something. Um, I, I don't want to back. I don't want to back away from this entirely. I want to push this. But the, the term that uh, Athanasius, for instance, used was logikos. 
So Jesus is the logos, and then when you put that uh, cos at the end of the Greek word, it means an adjective. So Jesus is the logos, and we are logos-like. And if you, if you look back, that's kind of the way I've been talking. But I, I, today I need to make the strong point that, that Jesus as the logos is formative, related to, behind um, what we are as the language species. I wanted to establish that first. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.